0: Welcome to 5th Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. Have you heard of Opendoor, Offerpad, and Zillow Offers, but aren't quite sure exactly what they do? In today's episode, I catch up with Mate Pence, co-founder and CEO of fifth wall portfolio company Loft. Mate shares Loft's experience of localizing the universally applicable iBuyer model in Brazil, outlining the differences between the US and Brazilian residential real estate markets and explaining why these businesses have the potential to become some of the largest in their respective markets across the globe. Mate, thank you so much for for joining. Are you coming in from Sao Paulo right now?
1: That's right. It's good to be here, Brendan, as
0: always. And uh, yes, I'm calling in from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Nice. Um, Well, can you just give people your background? Just you know, how how you came to found Loft. So everything up until the founding of Loft, like what was that inspiration that that led you here?
1: Yeah, it's a bit of a longer story, but I'll, I'll try to um, uh, convey it in a nutshell. I, I've been a bit of a global nomad uh, up until here. Uh, I've been living the past 10 years in Brazil, but before that, I lived in a couple of different places in Europe. Uh, I was born originally uh, in Hungary, in Budapest specifically. My parents then actually as refugees uh, after the Iron Curtain fell in Berlin, uh, my parents were able to uh, migrate to Germany. So they settled down in Germany and I spent sort of the better part of my childhood and, and adolescence growing up in Southern Germany. So a lot of my formative years were spent in Germany before I then moved to the US for college. Uh, I was able to uh, get a scholarship at, um, uh, at Harvard and I, I spent, uh, did my undergrad in uh, economics at Harvard University. After that, I spent a brief stint in, in finance, and it was during the, that brief stint in finance that I met my current co-founder, uh, who also happens to be half German, half uh, Brazilian, I guess. Uh, he was the connection to Brazil. Uh, so Florian, he, uh, he had also been studying in the U.S. Uh, he was completing a degree at Wharton, and both of us uh, spent sort of a year and a half, two years post-college working uh, in the financial industry. Uh, initially in in banking and then later on um, in private equity and uh, and at hedge funds so you know uh, we, we basically during that time started iterating or started i guess uh dreaming about starting a company and and specifically we we hit it off kind of uh, as far as the co founder dynamic is concerned so we uh, before we even decided what to do and where to do it, we had decided that we wanted to start a company together and then kind of started the Iterative creative process of thinking about what to do, and we actually settled on where to do it first. So, Brazil uh, got into the map fairly quickly. This was in 2010, 2011, so about a decade ago now. Uh, when uh, you know the world was still recovering from the financial crisis, it felt like um, it was a good time to not be working uh, on Wall Street or not be necessarily trying to construct a career on Wall Street. And, uh, you know, it did seem, uh, conversely, it did seem an exciting time to be moving to emerging markets. Both of us had already traveled around during college and uh, and prior to college to lots of places in Asia. Um, And, you know, I I had not spent a lot of time in Brazil, honestly. I had, uh, you know, uh, read a fair amount about Brazil and I had seen that um, the technology and sort of consumer Internet market was getting to an interesting inflection point. Brazil was getting up there in like the top two, three of, uh, of Facebook and Twitter users. So Latin America, I guess, as a uh, consumer economy uh, was was digitizing pretty rapidly. And so, you know, we, we followed that opportunity. I, I visited Brazil a, a few times before kind of making a more de- decisive leap, but um, it was really a you know, gut decision. It felt like uh, I really liked the reception of the, uh, of the people and I uh, felt like we could really do something interesting here. Uh, there was plenty of, um, there were still plenty of challenges to be solved, and, and there's certainly plenty of challenges everywhere, but uh, as an entrepreneur, it felt like, uh, you know, if we were to be successful in Brazil, it'd be doubly rewarding because whatever we did would probably sort of move the needle more than it would if we did it in, uh, in Europe or, or the U.S. for that matter. So that's how I ended up here uh, about a decade ago. Uh started my first company, which uh, had nothing to do with Loft per se. Uh, But it was also a tech-enabled business. So it was a business that uh, was in the e-commerce space, uh, specifically in online printing. So those of you that uh, might be familiar with Vistaprint or some of the other um, online printing companies in the U.S., we built something similar, obviously highly adapted to the kind of Brazilian local uh, consumer needs, but we built and and scaled that business uh, for about seven to eight years And uh, eventually ended up actually partnering up with Vistaprint. Vistaprint ended up investing in us and then uh, later on actually acquired us as they were uh, moving into the Latin American market. We're looking to uh, build up their stakes. It was a very uh, successful story for us, especially, uh, you know, uh, when I started the business, I was 22 or 23 years old. So still quite young uh, for us to be able to kind of go full, full circle. Uh, if you will, on, on starting, scaling and, and selling the company was very uh, rewarding, but it felt like it wasn't really the business that we wanted to run for the rest of our uh, lives. So it really was a, a very uh, successful marriage with, uh, with Vistaprint. And, and today the company is actually um, number one uh, leader in the space in, in Latin America. So it's uh, one of the largest uh, B2B e-commerce companies out there. So as as uh, Vistaprint then uh, took over the day-to-day management of the business, uh, we handed over the reins and we moved on uh, to looking at the real estate market. And so that's, I guess, um, how we got to um, meet with you guys and uh, about two years ago or so, ended up meeting with you and uh, Vic and the fifth ball team uh, more generally,
0: just as we're about to get started with Loft. And so it sounds like, uh, even rewinding you know, past Printy, it sounds like, the, the who was very clear to you and your co-founder, Florian, uh, and the where was also very clear, or at least was clear in both instances. But the what had, had kind of evolved. And I'm curious why you picked real estate. Like, what was the draw to real estate in Brazil?
1: Yeah, I guess, you know, the first time around, um, we were still quite naive and it was very much a gut decision of, uh, of what to do. We obviously iterated before we started Princi. We, uh, we had looked at some markets, but we were, weren't nearly as deliberate about it as when we started Loft. I think when we started Loft, we had a very, you know, I guess, um, concise framework for what kind of market we want to tackle, what kind of impact we also wanted to have, uh, you know, I guess naturally as you uh, mature as an entrepreneur, your ambition grows and your, uh, you know, I guess the potential sort of markets that you can tackle uh, gets more restricted, but we did get very excited about real estate as a market that was a still extremely intransparent and inefficient uh, be very little, I guess, um, not just technological uh, innovation, but also just process innovation still to be done. So to the extent that, um, you know, it, it's still challenging in a lot of emerging markets to come about uh, a lot of tech talent. So Building a business that's sort of a pure technology company is, is difficult, uh, but there's myriad opportunities to build tech-enabled businesses. So real estate really combined uh a large kind of uh incipient uh market that hadn't really been uh innovated through technology yet. And it, it felt like you know, really kind of one of the big last frontiers specifically if you look at the um, at the B2C experience, if you look at the consumer experience in real estate, even the U S has evolved quite a bit over these last few years and decades, but you're still talking about a market that it, you know, despite being the largest asset class in the world still transacts essentially purely peer to peer. It's a market that, um, you know, has very few kind of institutional, um, uh, trust and in, in guardrails and controls beyond sort of, uh, Uh, legacy processes and kind of legacy uh, notary systems and so forth. So it felt like there was just a lot to do uh, from a few different angles. And so I feel like the biggest challenge actually was not um, deciding on real estate as a category that we wanted to play in, but more about kind of what would be our initial edge and what would be our angle. Um, And that's how we ultimately got to the uh, The idea of doing something along the lines of uh, Zillow homes or open door uh, leveraging the power of uh, of a really strong sell side proposition uh, you know namely liquidity up front cash up front to to use that as an initial wedge into the market and uh, to be able to ultimately build a profitable model uh, even even if we were not to be kind of um, doing this on a national scale. I think that's the beauty of real estate. You can really build a large real estate company, whether it's a developer or whether it's a uh, tech company. Uh, and you, know, you can be street easy in Manhattan and you can be a relevant business. And, and that's kind of where we uh, started. We literally started one neighborhood in the city of, uh, of Sao Paulo. And then from that neighborhood, and I guess concentric circles uh, started expanding. And and today we cover um, you know both of the largest cities. We cover both of Sao Paulo and Rio. And we're uh, we're planning on expanding into other Tier One cities, but it's a, it's a very different market with very different challenges. But ultimately, a lot of the kind of universal principles of entrepreneurship apply the same way that they uh, would in the U.S.
0: And and how much when you started Loft was Open Door kind of an example um, or kind of an inspiration. Uh, and what I'm asking is how much of the Brazilian residential market is just idiosyncratic to Brazil, and how much can actually be learned from the U.S
1: yeah it's a very good question. I think that um when you initially start a company as an entrepreneur, uh, you obviously lean more heavily on any example, whether it's domestic examples or foreign examples, but you try to sort of uh, gain inspiration from from examples but then Pretty quickly, you start to realize that uh, much less about the models is kind of uh, universally applicable or is generically kind of portable. And there's actually a lot of local specificity in real estate overall, but also in this model specifically. And, you know, I think that one of the things that we started to realize quickly was uh, even though I guess the sell side proposition of providing upfront liquidity to the seller exists anywhere around the world, everyone's looking to sell their apartment for a fair price and to do that quickly. I think that's a universal uh, desire in the real estate market. W- what does change though, is the way that the kind of fabric of the underlying real estate market, namely the broker market is is structured in the U S uh, open door and all the players uh, in some ways, um, have a challenge, but also benefit in a big way from the MLS or the collection of uh, multiple listing services that exist in the market. So just the and, data. Um, and, and, and Is and that the, a
0: data the, thing, Mate? Like meaning there's just it, higher levels of data transparency about home price valuations in the U.S. than non-U.S. markets?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a data quality and uh, quantity and quality question, but it's also interestingly, you know, I guess if you take a step back, um, you know what enabled the MLS uh, to exist in the first place. It was collaboration amongst the brokers. So the fact that agents and brokers collaborated and decided that there would be this concept of exclusivity—that there would be a sell-side agent, there'd be a buy-side agent—and uh, and agents generally are not at risk of getting uh, of getting disintermediated in the process as part of a real estate transaction—that helped the MLS to come about, and that. Uh, in turn enabled all this like data richness uh, to exist in the us. So if you look at the Brazilian market, and, and frankly, also a lot of European markets, uh, you know, as we're scaling loft and we looked at um, a lot of uh, the markets that we have lived in personally in Europe, uh, a lot of those markets also don't have all this transparency. And a lot of that is because uh, the broker community just doesn't have incentives to collaborate. And that means you end up having much worse data, uh, at least publicly available data in Germany, than you would in the US, uh, just as an example. So I think that um, is really kind of the cornerstone upon which we didn't initially build Loft, but we very quickly realized that data would have to be that differentiating cornerstone because there wasn't any good high quality data out there, and, and it frankly, wouldn't be responsible to try and uh, build an eye buying business at scale without initially or without without at first having uh, better data predictability and and data data both around prices but also important around liquidity how do you kind of measure, uh, the turnover, expected the turnover at home as you're trading it, as you're uh, selling it. And all, cause ultimately, you know, I guess, uh, both open door ourselves and also, uh, Zillow, uh, none of these businesses are in the business of holding real estate, uh, per se it's, it's really, you're trying to be a clearinghouse, You're trying to create liquidity. Uh, you're trying to create a transactional marketplace. You're trying to be much more similar, I guess, to, uh, to an Amazon, uh, then you're trying to be similar to like a, uh, uh, a publicly traded REIT. So I think the um, you know getting data and, and you know predictable and, and rich data, both on the pricing and the liquidity side, was super important. And, and the way we got around that challenge was by uh, doing this in a very geographically ring fenced area, starting literally with one neighborhood where we bought up all the publicly data. Uh, it publicly available data that was out there, uh, but then also enriching that data with a lot of data sources or variables that we thought were relevant. Uh, physical properties of the apartments and, and, and condo buildings, uh, just a lot of um, quantifiable variables that hadn't previously been really quantified or at least uh, joined up together in a single database. And then using that as an engine, as a predictor, I uh, guess, you know, borrowing from some of the US parlance
0: like an AVM uh, that would power our um, are, are buying and selling decisions. And you made this point earlier that, you know, the, the residential real estate market is this somewhat odd market in the sense that it's, it's it's enormous, it's vast in every country. And yet, by and large, it's a peer-to-peer market, right? So you have end users selling to end users. And I imagine part of your philosophy, as well as Open Doors' philosophy, and it seems like any iBuyer's philosophy, is that there should be this mediation layer, this intermediating... B to C business that ultimately sells the homes to a consumer, but also C to B business, right? Where that same business is acquiring homes from the consumer. How much of the absence of, you know, that kind of mediating business, that intermediating company in in the center of this large market was due to the absence of data? And how much of it was pure timing? I'm just curious to get your view on that.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, I think that part of it definitely has to do with a lack of, of data or with the cost of data, rather, um, being relatively high. Uh, if you look at it sort of on a unit level, you, you could obviously, decades ago, pull all this data at the sort of you know, uh, state and, and notary level in most countries, but just the ability to kind of harness this data, process it, and, uh, and have it be kind of updated in real time you know, the, the cost of that is still significant. You're still talking about millions and millions of dollars of, uh, of cost outlay to do that, but it's, uh, it's a fraction of what it would have been uh, a long time ago. So I think the data availability hasn't changed that much, but the costs of the data has come down dramatically. Just the fact that my AVM can run on um, on AWS and I can do that in sort of almost an infinitely uh, scalable fashion is,
0: is, is massive. It's, and, it's and really- Just so people know, what's an AVM?
1: It's an automated valuation model. So just think about sort of uh, h- how do I, um, you know, h- how do I price both what an apartment is worth and how liquid I expect it to be uh, sort of in real time? Uh, how do I put a price tag on on somebody's apartment? That That's what an AVM uh, allows you to do. And nowadays, there's uh, plenty of companies that even offer these, these AVMs uh, to third parties. So there's data providers that uh, essentially take the raw data that the MLS provides and then uh, create an AVM for you, but if you look at Open Door, if you look at Zillow, if you look at a lot of companies, um, even companies that are doing this in the car space, transactional car marketplaces uh, like a Carvana or a Room or a Shift in the U.S., these companies also uh, have their own AVMs that allow them to determine, like, you know, should I be playing blue book value or should I be paying above or beyond, uh, below the value of, of what the uh, uh, seller is looking to do? So I think data um really kind of brought companies into this game. And I think also access to, to capital, the fact that um, you can now raise quantums of capital that allow you to take a lot of this risk on balance sheet. I think in you know doing this in the 70s, 80s or 90s, um, would have been nearly impossible because the capital just wasn't, uh, uh, wasn't out there. And I think ultimately also the evolution of this kind of evolutionary curve of consumer adoption of internet technologies allows you to today be able to step up to consumer and say, Hey, I'm going to offer you a lot of convenience, allow you to sell your home online. You know, if you had tried to do that 15 years ago, uh, there would have been a lot of resistance. And nowadays um, I think, uh, one of your recent talks, you mentioned that, uh, that your parents uh, now buy pretty much everything online, so do mine. So I think that it's become um, you know, second nature to us to just purchase anything online, essentially. So even as you move into higher ticket categories, whether that's cars or, or homes, I don't think it's inconceivable to have kind of an Amazon of homes or sev- several Amazons of homes in different uh, markets in different regions that allow you to transact uh, real estate in a more uh,
0: frictionless fashion. And clearly we we agree. I think it's it's counterintuitive to a lot of people that you can, within a certain confidence interval, arrive at the price of a home a priori, right? Just through computation, through aggregating and integrating and running calculations on all these data sources that you mentioned. I think to some extent, it's a little more intuitive to people that you can do that with a standardized product like a car, right? Because you, you, know, the concept of Kelly Blue Book value has been around for quite some time. I think with homes, the, the, there's a counterintuitiveness to it that, that's that's very unique to real estate. And I'm curious how people react to that when you say, look, I, I can price a particular house, a particular condo within a few percentage points of my confidence interval. Do people react to that with trust? As I, I totally believe you on the the customer side of it, meaning customers do just have a trust in uh, internet services in a way that they didn't ten years ago, and they certainly didn't even six months ago. Um, but more about the valuation: how do you build consumer trust that your valuation is high integrity and can be trusted?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question, and I think that um, you know that that's one fundamental way in which we differ, uh, at least in terms of how. Opendoor originally started. I know nowadays Opendoor also offers listing services, but uh, given that when we launched, there wasn't really a kind of Zillow equivalent in Brazil, we pretty quickly became both the Opendoor and Zillow, obviously on a smaller scale and more geographically focused, but we we kind of filled a vacuum both on the iBuying side and we filled an existing kind of vacuum also on just um, you know high quality listing service side. And then we were able to offer choice to the customers. So since, you know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, uh, you know, if you come to us and you want instant liquidity on your home, then we'll tell you the price is X. But if you're not necessarily in a rush, you can list on our site and you can see kind of what the open market is willing to offer you for that property. So we essentially we don't um, we, we don't. Um, create any kind of pressure on the on the sell side, we don't necessarily say that our our value is the perfect value, we do think that it's a, a good approximation of fair market value. But a lot of consumers may disagree with us, and they may come back to us six months from now, and have us reprice the property and then eventually sell to us. So I guess it was a um, it, it was a kind of patient approach or patient strategy around trying to educate the market, especially because you do have a relatively meaningful gap between uh, the kind of bid and ask spread. So the price that uh, customers uh, think that their home is worth and ultimately how much it, it, it really is worth or will transact for. I think that's universal. That's human nature. Um, I think the question is just what what is that gap? Uh, are we talking about 2 to 3%? Are we talking about 15 to 20%? And one of the things that we have found which is pretty interesting and kind of universally true is that uh, the transparency of the market is inversely correlated uh, with the size of the, of the bid-ask spread. In other words, markets like the US, uh, where you do have a higher degree of transparency, both buyers and sellers already are kind of on the same page what a home might be worth, again, with like a call it 5% uh, or maybe even 10% uh, delta and in confidence interval, but you generally kind of know what a home is uh, is worth. You might not like the price, but you uh, you are in disagreement, you are in agreement, whether it's in, uh, in Brazil and in emerging markets or less transparent markets generally, the the opposite is true. So we have to take a more patient approach to kind of educating the customer, uh, showing the client that we think the property is worth X amount and if he, disagrees with that, he should just list it with us for free. So, you know, different from, I guess, some of the more traditional classifieds models, our our model is a model where the uh, seller can list for free and uh, we will take the photos, so we will kind of uh, create a high quality listing. Uh, We'll also do 3D tours for essentially all of the properties that we list uh, for some properties that require some fixing up, we even create 3D models of what the property might look like post-renovation. So we do a lot of hand-holding on the, on the seller's side to enable the seller to go through the price discovery process themselves. And, uh, and again, two months in, they might decide to just sell for us for the instant offer uh, price that we had offered, or they'll just wait for somebody else to come around and, and offer them more. So it's a, it's a, it's a broader price curation funnel. Uh, I think that's the, I guess, uh, um, in, in summary, how you could, uh, how you could phrase it. Whereas in the U S the high buying price and the price that you could, um, capture by just letting the property on market for a couple of weeks is, is tighter. You're talking about a, a, t- a world of tighter spreads in the U S, uh,
0: because of a higher degree of data transparency. And when you think about that bid, ass spread, which going back to, you know, college finance days, I mean, that's the inside market, right? If you wanna sell a stock for 130 and I wanna buy a stock at 100 bucks, the, the $30 is the inside market and the amount of data we can gather about what other transactions are clearing at informs both of us and hypothetically closes that inside market. I, I appreciate that in a market like Brazil, there is a wider inside market. There's more daylight in the price that a seller is willing to sell at and the consumer is willing to buy at. Um, How do you think that closing that gap with data, right, and offering more transparency creates a consumer surplus, is a benefit to the consumers in the Brazilian housing market? And I'm just asking more philosophically, like, where does that lead? Does more transparency lead to just more liquidity into the market, higher lending rates, uh, more affordability for housing? Where do you think that takes the Brazilian housing market?
1: Yeah, it's very much a part of our mission to make the market more transparent because we do believe that higher transparency will lead to smaller spreads, but it will also lead to higher liquidity, higher turnover. Uh, I think similar to kind of the analogy I made around, um, you know, the, the lack of transparency and and lack of um, uh, lack of kind of price discovery uh, on the liquidity side it, it, when you're looking at a market that has lower transaction costs and a market that transacts uh, more generally you have you just have a, a bigger um, you just have higher turnover people end up moving more uh, and people end up living less time in suboptimal condition and and that goes you know part of that is education so part of it is uh, us trying to kind of show people. Um, hey, you know, mortgages are not universally a bad thing. I think that one of the uh, inheritances uh, of the legacy of high interest rate environments in China and Brazil is that a lot of people are fearful of, uh, of financing. People are fearful of, of mortgages. Uh, I think something like 90% of residential real estate transactions in the US have some sort of leverage attached to it. In Brazil, that's closer to 20 to 30%. So only about less than a third of real estate transactions in the big cities have any kind of leverage associated with it. So, you know, that, that really feeds directly into the affordability question. Uh, People end up living uh, in the same home for much longer until they can afford to make an all cash uh, transaction, um, perhaps twice as many years down the line as they would if they were living in the U S and if they had the same kind of median household income uh, adjusted for even adjusted for their, um, their, their, Uh, their PPP. So, you know, same kind of income bracket uh, in Brazil uh, will move much less often than they would in the U.S. And this is not just between cities. This is literally within the city. Uh, You're looking to add an extra uh, bedroom. You'll do that much sooner in the U.S. than you would in Brazil. So I think that as we look into the future, uh, you know, especially in the low interest rate environment that we're in today, I think that that is a significant uh, tailwind uh, for us in sort of the global real estate economy, but also just uh, transparency just uh, us open sourcing in a way uh, our AVM open sourcing our uh, pricing tools similar to how you know, Zillow has done the, in the u s and just making that very accessible. I think that'll build trust, and through that trust, people will um, yeah p- people will be more willing to take uh, take a purchase decision. Especially if that's combined with affordability, if that's combined with knowing that they'll be able to sell that home again and that they can actually afford that home uh, whilst they're, uh, they're carrying it. Because transparency cuts both ways. It creates this kind of uh, reticence going in, but it also really creates a lot of uh, fearfulness on the way out. Like, am I going to be able to sell this? How much is this going to be worth uh, several years down the line. I think in the U S you just kind of universally, especially if you're moving into an area that, um, you know, has a diversified economy and an area that, uh, kind of has proven that it's, uh, you know, resilient. You generally don't tend to kind of associate a, uh, uh, you know, a, a large, uh, expectation of, of loss around the property to the contrary. You, you know, might even think that, uh, property will appreciate and, and here, a lot of that is to the contrary. People do think that real estate is a, uh, store of value, but, um, especially when you, uh, when you talk about financing, there's still uh, a lot of, uh, mistrust. And a lot of that also comes from just the concentration of the banking sector. Not to go on too much of a tangent here, but when you look at a lot of emerging markets, you see that uh, the banking sector is way more concentrated than it is in the U.S. So as we look at, you know, fintechs, as we look at expansion of just the ability to fund your property, especially if you're a subprime customer, uh, I think that there is a a huge opportunity for companies like us and others uh, to revolutionize not just the transactional piece of it, but also the funding side of it, uh, the mortgage piece of it whether it's in combination with banks or whether it's also uh, in, in kind of co uh, with banks originating for banks, but also originating on,
0: uh, on our own balance sheet eventually. And you know, you, you, you made this comment about the, the effects of adding transparency. And, and I'm curious if you anticipate that in a market like Brazil in a developing economy, adding this transparency at the stage that the market is at right now, um, has the ability to almost leapfrog some of the things that have happened in the u s that have been pernicious to you know affordability and to credit um, in, in particular I mean that when you add transparency right you, you you restore a certain amount of consumer confidence and buyer confidence that they're getting the right home at the right price and in turn that gives you know, more liquidity that in turns provides for higher leverage levels and lending from banks, which in turn leads to more affordability, which I think everyone can agree is a positive thing. And yeah. when you look at the U.S., right, it's almost like we had very high leverage levels in the U.S. way before we had enough data to truly be transparent, both between the buyer and the seller, but also between the lenders and the ultimate buyers of that debt. I mean, that, that's what spawned the housing crisis. So this is a very philosophical question, but do you think that Brazil has the opportunity to almost leapfrog some of the credit issues that in some ways stemmed from transparency that occurred in the US because this collapsing of the bid-ask spread is happening later and through technology, given where we are in 2020?
1: I think that's right. You know, I think um, that there's a lot of examples that i could think of that kind of showcase this uh m- more recently uh one of the big banks here in brazil started using ravm uh instead of an appraisal company that they were using previously uh so i, I think that there's a lot of um uh mistrust in general when it comes to sort of uh, real estate appraisals uh businesses but it's it's a very emblematic um you know it exemplifies exactly what you said the fact that uh a decade ago, 15 years ago, you, you had to literally hire a physical appraiser that would look at the property. And, um, you know, that, that person uh, just doesn't have the capacity, the same capacity that sort of a machine learning algorithm has uh, to assess the property, it's going to be uh, inevitably much more of a gut based uh, decision, even if he bases himself off of uh, certain comps, he's not going to be able to ingest the same type of comp set of millions of comps. Uh, the way that like a Zillow AVM or an Open Door AVM can do. So just the richness of the data set and the fact that uh, you know institutions now are waking up to, to to the kind of beauty and the accuracy of of this data, I think does allow us to potentially kind of grow into healthier lending levels. Healthy meaning higher uh, amounts of leverage in the mortgage market, um, and doing so in a in a healthy way. I think I think that also, frankly. Uh, a lot of the guardrails here um, are in place around um, LTVs. So having a loan to value that is is not sort of excessively high uh, where the U S kind of both in terms of the penetration of mortgages, but also the absolute LTV levels uh, just perhaps went a little bit too far. Uh, a lot of those guardrails here are already in place. So you have, I guess uh, much better data. You have guardrails around sort of the maximum LTV levels uh, for any given home. And you're also hopefully, uh, approaching these sort of higher LTV levels in, in a way that, um, yeah, just from a consumer education, uh, perspective is also a different, uh, uh, point because you, you can create much more individualized, uh, offers for, for users. You can educate your end user much more today with technology than you would be able to, or would have been able to decades ago, right? Um, if you, if you're real estate shopping, uh, in the '80s or '90s or even early 2000s, you had very few tools available to really uh, create a holistic view of um, what properties are worth and, and where you should be moving to. Uh, whereas nowadays, that's you know it's, it's almost as easy as uh, as comparing products on Amazon. And um, you know, same way that that e-commerce experience uh, of benchmarking products and, and prices uh, moved online, I think the home buying experience has
0: also gotten democratized in a way yeah and and it's it's remarkable that something that is the largest store of consumer wealth at least in the united states is so non-transparent um and so it's really interesting to think about where that goes and i'm going to ask a question that's probably in some ways a, a a segue into what's happening next for for loft but i have a thesis and i think FifthWall does that you know i buyers and these platforms that enable consumers to sell their home with a higher degree of confidence, whether that's directly to the business itself or through their platform, as in the case of Loft, um, those businesses will become some of the biggest businesses in every market in the world for no other reason than residential housing is usually one of, if not the biggest market in every country in the world. Do you think that thesis is true? Like, do you think that's where we're headed globally, that we have these intermediating c to b and b to c businesses that add transparency to residential housing markets globally
1: yeah i mean i think that generally speaking it's um hard to imagine a world in which that would not be the case eventually if you just look at the evolution of intermediation or disintermediation of of all other um categories of goods and and services really so you know I, i don't um And I think we're really still in the early innings of this. But if you do look at um, categories of of much larger ticket items, I think cars is is an interesting uh, example, albeit not a perfect comp to houses. But it is already something that is generally worth 10, 20, 50 times more uh, than the average e-commerce purchase that you would make on Amazon. You know, I think I think. Decades ago, people thought it'd be inconceivable to buy a car uh, or to sell a car without, um, you know, seeing the counterparty that you're interacting with. And now, generally speaking, the used car market is still vastly offline. So, you know, even these kind of early pioneers uh, that exist today were already worth tens of billions of dollars, but they're still early pioneers just because the market is so large. I think that they're bringing precisely that transparency and that uh, convenience to the table that consumers are Uh, are looking for. So I, I, you know, I don't um, really see why that would stop with um, with cars. And I think that that will extend itself to any consumer good and the apartment or the home uh, that any person owns generally tends to be the largest um, uh, good that they uh, own. I think there's a lot of innovation to be had both uh, in the way in which it gets transacted, but also in the way uh, in which it is actually owned. I think that, uh, and you're seeing a lot of that happening in us already, but, plenty of emerging markets where you see kind of this dichotomy of, uh, um, of, um, of ownership being, uh, being broken uh, where models that previously were just very kind of static rental or ownership models uh, kind of get fused and, and people just have the flexibility to think about the move itself and not so much about kind of, do I need to buy this or can I rent this? Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of intermediary uh, solutions there and you're going to see a lot more uh, dynamism there. I think again smaller um, ticket items like uh, cars we've already seen a lot of that innovation the leasing space and in, uh, in cars with low interest rates has uh, has exploded over these past decades so I think we're gonna um, yeah we're gonna see a lot of exciting uh, stuff there I you know uh, to be seen how large these companies will be I think that does depend a lot on sort of how local. Uh, these businesses ultimately will be. I think. Um, I think. Frankly, Amazon has has proven all of us uh, or a lot of us uh, wrong in the sense that um, you know we wouldn't have thought that a business like this could scale nationally and then globally and sort of create so much um, replicability in its model or so much scale in its operating system that uh, would allow it to capture such a large swath of the overall market. But, um, you know, we'll see that traditional real estate certainly has been a very, uh, local game. Uh, and I think it's undeniable that there's a lot of local specificity, certainly more local specificity in, in real estate than in uh, sort of CPG and or consumer goods more, more broadly. Uh, but it's also a lot more value. As you said, it's, uh, you know, generally residential real estate tends to be the largest, uh, asset class in, in most places.
0: And so what's next for Loft?
1: I think it's uh, all about creating a better end-to-end consumer experience. And I think we, uh, you know, we touched briefly on uh, cross-selling services like like mortgages, mortgages, insurance, uh, title, escrow-like services, Uh, even though they don't fully exist in the same fashion here in Brazil they exist in the U.S., the pain point exists. And so the ability to kind of create more and more of an end-to-end experience for the entire transactional journey is uh, is something that we're very focused on. I do think that we're also seeing a big opportunity in taking this to more uh, tier one cities. Uh, I think we're initially at least very focused on the large cities around Brazil or, or Latin America generally. Uh, and so, you know, I think uh, we're already quite confident in the two big arenas that we're playing in, which is Sao Paulo and Rio, the two key markets uh, and two of the kind of three, four largest markets in Latin America. But looking at um, you know, other tier one cities, we're seeing a lot of opportunity there. And uh, to your point, a lot of replicability in, in the model and, and sort of how we uh, roll things out. So I think it's uh, yeah, it's, it's exciting times ahead. Uh, the pandemic also, despite all the suffering that it brought, it certainly uh, brought with it a lot of uh, silver linings as far as consumer adoption is concerned. And we've been able to sort of uh, transplant even the pieces of the Consumer journey that weren't already fully online, we've been able to sort of fast track them and, and put them fully online. So nowadays you can buy any home uh, or sell any home 100% online through Loft. Even the deed gets transferred 100% online. So again, to the point around leapfrogging, I think that emerging markets uh, did a pretty good job, not necessarily in battling the pandemic. I think that uh, a lot of us failed there uh, miserably, but luckily other parts of the economy adapted quickly and were able to kind of adopt to uh, a uh, much more remote world much more quickly. And I think that's exciting. I think that we're trying to kind of uh, really open up our uh our sales here, and, and trying to take advantage of these uh, of these tailwinds, and and offer a better service for for all the customers out there.
0: Well, we are thrilled to be supporting you, and uh, I think it's just an amazing vision of what can happen in these residential markets when you inject that that data transparency to ultimately the buyer and the seller, but in turn, capital markets and we're really optimistic and really excited about uh, being investors in loft and supporting you. So thanks for chatting about the business.
1: Yeah, it was my pleasure. Always great to catch up, Brendan. And uh, yeah, talk to you guys soon.
0: Great. Thanks, Mate. Thanks for listening to this episode of fly on the wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel to learn more about fifth wall, visit our website at www dot fifthwall dot com.